welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And everyone is sick this week, by the way. Everyone is sick, but <laughs> guess what? <laughs> what? It's a birthday. Oh, it's yeah! a birthday. <laughs> That's not even a fake, oh yeah, I totally forgot this is our birthday episode. Wow, Brenna. <laughs> You forgot our one-year anniversary. What is that, wood, paper? <laughs> I think it's paper, if I remember correctly. Is it rabbit, maybe? <laughs> it's paper back book? Huh? Huh? Boo, but I'll allow it. <laughs> I kind of love it. <laughs> it is. We've been doing this podcast for a year, Joe. Can you believe it? I, honest to gosh, cannot. No. <laughs> it kind of feels like we've been doing it forever. And also, it sort of feels like we've read maybe 10 books. I know. I know. And at a certain point, they do blur. I'm glad we have the podcast as a record. I was updating my reading list for this year. And I was like, this feels light. I'm sure I've read more than this. And I was like, oh, I'll go look at the podcast episodes <laughs> to see yep. what I've read. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. So it was just slightly over a year ago then that Joe asked everyone he knew if they wanted to do a podcast with him. And eventually I was the one who said yes. That's true. You were my last resort. I was going to ask my mom if you had said no. Aww. I joke. My mom's illiterate. <laughs> the listeners She'll never listen love to your this. Mom's it doesn't podcast. matter. <laughs> Hi, Joe's mom. Actually, know plenty of people who record with their mother, and it's often really good content. But yeah, I bet. in this case, I don't know that my mom would have enjoyed it. <laughs> your mom would be like, I'm not reading another John Green book, Joe. <laughs> oh wow yeah no just for clarity's sake you were the first and only person i asked to do this with oh and it's been fun i've really enjoyed reading with you i've really enjoyed getting back in touch with you on a regular basis that's been mm -hmm. a nice plus and i've enjoyed having this other especially since i moved into this non-teaching job it's been really nice to still be talking about books with you and with our listeners and people who care about books it's it's been a really nice outlet for me mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. i think that's one of the things that i've also really enjoyed is hearing from people i mean as much as it's great when you and i get to have our conversations it's been really touching and meaningful oh, yeah. and just so, so pleasant to hear from people who have differences of opinions or they had a different take on a book or they've got a recommendation or they <gasps> want to know if we're going to do something in the future. Like, it's just, it's really nice. It's really it lovely. Is. The recommendations are a particular high point for me. I love hearing about new books and it's so interesting when people come out with books that I've never heard of. I always feel like I'm pretty on the ball and then we get listener recommendations and I'm like, oh wow, nope, nope, you can never possibly know all the books <laughs> that are out there. You just can't. No, absolutely not. I also love it because I've never heard of any of them and I mean, I've never heard of most of the books, so half the time for me, it's just like, what is this magical thing that we call literature? <laughs> and this week, speaking of capital L literature, we're yes. visiting a classic and we're revisiting a book that Joe and I first read the very first class we ever took together, which was mm -hmm. children's literature way back in 2002 Gosh. or 2003. Yeah. It was one or the other. Yeah, let's split the difference and say late 2002. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, it's been 17 years, Joe, since we last clapped eyes on Watership Down. And I've really enjoyed revisiting it. It's a book that I read for the first time as an adult, but as a really new adult. And uh, right. I definitely think I read it differently this time around. Oh, and I'm yeah. 
looking forward to digging into it with you. But before we do that, mm-hmm. we're going to do homework. Yes. Except that instead of homework, we're going to have a little talk about the future of the show. Right? Yes. And before anyone panics, this is not <laughs> a breakup. <laughs> we're not breaking up with each other or with you, dear listeners. <laughs> but Joe and I are both finding the schedule a little bit hard to manage these days. Yeah. Often the books we pick are really long. Like this week, Watership Down is like a cool 500 pages. You betcha. And it's hard to put your full attention into reading a book that long, plus watching a two-hour movie, plus sometimes there's other things we want to look at in relation to the text, and still read new stuff for homework, and still, uh, like, maintain a job and a family. <laughs> and Joe, you've got another podcast to think about with content you have to keep on top of for that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you said, we've been finding that it's just been a lot. And I think part of the concern is that we don't want to be in a position where we're not doing a good job with Mm -hmm. the show and letting listeners down. So we've come up with what we think is a really solid plan for how we're going to move forward with this. It's not going to come into effect until the new year. So in January, we're going to move to this proposed model. So for the next couple of weeks, you will still have regular weekly content with a new book every week so we're not changing it too soon but starting next year i guess starting in january Mm -hmm. after the holidays we're going to split up the homework and the sort of analysis portions of the show so we'll look at a book and a movie every second week uh, and in the interim we'll do sort of shorter mini-sodes where we get to spend a little bit more time on the homework portion hopefully Mm -hmm. we get to finish more of the books we bring to homework (laughs) Um, and And also when we do things like author interviews and things, we won't be doubling those up on a week. We'll be sort of spreading that content out a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that we need from you folks to help us with those mini-sodes, because we don't want to just make it kind of like a, hey, this is what I'm reading. And if you're not reading it, you may not care. (laughs) So we are going to invite you to become more active in the podcast. And we're going to start answering your listener questions. Yeah, we've really enjoyed the last few weeks having regular listener mail. And by the way, Max, got your email about Mary Sue. Going to address that on a future show. Don't think you're 100% correct. Wait for that. (laughs) (laughs) So we are going to keep answering listener mail. And this is a great thing too. If you want to write in with questions or if you're looking for a recommendation for a certain type of book or, you know, think about the ways in which we could be useful to you in those mini-sode episodes. What could we uh, help you with in your reading life? Or what would you like us to know? Yeah, so the email inbox will remain open, hkhspod at gmail.com. And what we might do is through the next few weeks and over the holidays, if you do send mail, we might save that up for um, mini-sodes as we move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we hope that uh, this is a good compromise position for everyone. It'll give us a little bit more breathing room, and it'll give us a chance, I think, to have more informed mini-sode, more informed homework episodes. I'm sort of want to stop telling you guys about books I've read 10 pages of. (laughs) Maybe be able to focus a little bit more on reading books all the way through and giving you a more thorough sense, especially when we're dealing with so many texts that have so many potentially problematic elements. It's nice to be finished a book before we start talking about it on the show. 
particularly if we are maybe making a recommendation. Like I know I've made quite a few book recommendations over the last year where I've said, oh, this premise sounds really mm-hmm. good. And the first couple of pages are really good. But then you get into the middle of it and you think, Ugh, you know what? Mm-hmm. It didn't really come together the way I had hoped. But I've already told people, hey, it's worth your time. So we just want to make sure that we're doing justice to all the books that we're talking about, whether they get a full episode or they only get a little slice. So what you'll hear through the rest of November and through December up until Christmas Day, I think, are mm-hmm. regular episodes just in the format you're used to. Uh, and then just like last year, we're going to do kind of a forecasting episode for the new year. And from that point onward, we'll be moving to our mini-sode, regular-sode, mini-sode, regular-sode <laughs> structure. <laughs> I call them full-length episodes, but yes, regular sode will also work. I really think regular sode is going to catch on, Joe. It's the wave of the future. Hashtag regular sode, if you agree with me. No, no. (laughs) Don't indulge Brenna on this. (laughs) All right, so... You're just going to wake up one morning and your your inbox or your DMs or your mentions are just going to be filled with regular sode. (laughs) Do you know how happy I would be if I could get something like that to catch on? I haven't been viral in years, Joe. Not in years. (laughs) Reach for the stars. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. With that, I think it's about time we turn to Watership Down. Yes. So, Brenna. Yes. Give me additional context for this book. So, you mentioned that we read this in a YA literature class back in university. Mm -hmm. But what was the circumstance for that? Give people the backstory. Of the class? Yeah, man. Okay, so... (laughs) It's our one-year anniversary. We've got to hype things up. (laughs) So we were taking... uh, Oh my gosh, his name was Dr. Robert Lovejoy. Lovejoy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Best last name ever. It's best last name ever. And we were taking his children's lit class. And it was the first experience I had really had with a class that was... Gosh, we had to know so much content for that class, didn't we? (laughs) So much. So we were actually reading a book a week for that class. Yes. And I remember at the time, everyone took this class thinking, well, it's just kids' books, so (laughs) it's not going to be be? that hard. Yeah. (laughs) And every single book was just an emotional, like... Oh my gosh. gosh. Some of them. We read Jacob Have I Loved in that I was going to say, I feel like we have talked about Jacob mm-hmm. Have I Loved before. We've... I think I talked about it as a book that I wish would be adapted into a yes. film, even though I recognize that I don't think it would work very well. Oof. All the feels. Oh, so many feels. And Bridge to Terabithia. I remember oh, right. reading Bridge to Terabithia on the bus ride home <laughs> to my shared house and weeping openly on the bus mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. being able to control it i swear every book we read in that class was just an uh, just an emotional violation on a certain yeah. level <laughs> i think the easiest book that we read was harry potter yes i think so too and that class was really focused on like nitty gritty details from text wasn't it he would ask us such mm-hmm. specific questions and he had this exam format if i remember correctly where it was like just a whole mess of questions and you could pick i don't know 25 of them or whatever to answer yes and they were so specific and that was all it was for that class right it was like two exams and one essay or something for a full year course mm-hmm. and i remember the midterm at christmas just being like woof <laughs> it was so bad <laughs> It was a lot of rote memorization, but mm-hmm. very specific details that even if you had read the book and paid attention, you might not be able to answer. Yes. And so that was a book that really 
or that was a class story that really taught me that my study skills were quite poor. I was saying to Joe that was back when I still thought that the best way to study for an English exam was to reread all the books, which if we have any university student listeners, don't do that. Mm-mm, it's not a good use of your time. Terrible use of your time. And so Joe and I and our friend Jen became a pretty tight study group, especially in the second half of that class. Mm-hmm. And why is that, Brenna? Because we were bombing the course. Oh, because we were friends <laughs> from work. Well, yeah, that, but also because we had to come together mm-hmm. to make it through a we certain did. Oh, I see what text. you're doing. I see Sorry, what you're doing. I could have warned you that I was going to try to do this. <laughs> Shoehorn that in there. <laughs> yes, when we came back from Christmas, we had to read Watership Down. And I think all three of us started it and just looked at each other in class like, there's no way we're going to get through this. Mm-hmm. We had an entire half a semester to mm-hmm. do it. But it was also 50% of our final grade in the course yes. was on this one single book. Yes. Oh my gosh, I had forgotten about that. Yes, I'm having flashbacks. Okay, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> but the reason that it was 50% compared to all these other books, which were great and giving us the feels and, you know, really emotional and deep, is because this is arguably, or particularly in Professor Lovejoy's opinion, one of the defining young adult literature texts. Yes, he was absolutely firm on that point. It wasn't a class with a lot of discussion, was it? (laughs) He would read at length from the texts, which I loved because he had the best voice. Oh, yeah. It was like your grandfather reading you a children's book. Yeah, and so he would read at length, long, long, lengthy chapters, and then he would sort of explain to us why the chapters were significant. Mm -hmm. And it was very clear that this book meant a great deal to him. Yes. And he encouraged us to have the book mean a great deal to us too uh and he Mm. made that the case by making it worth 50 percent of our second year english grade (laughs) yes yes but i'm glad i took that course because i learned so much about well all the stuff that we talk about on this show but just in general about why culture for young people matters Mm -hmm. he was a professor who took that very seriously in a time kind of before we were taking young adult content seriously as a culture i think so And so I found the course really empowering from that perspective, that the things young people like could be meaningful and and that this very sort of august learned man was willing to take things seriously. He was Mm -hmm. so serious, remember? He was so serious. yeah. No, I mean, he was a lovable man, but it wasn't like it wasn't a warm and fuzzy course. It wasn't a bird course. No. He expected you to come in and know the content and to take it as seriously as he was treating it. I mean, he was nice, but at the same time, he wanted you to understand that there was a reason the course existed at a university level, mm-hmm. and it was because the content merited the level of discussion and analysis, and that it was really varied, right? Yep. It wasn't just, oh, young adult literature is one thing. He had deliberately chosen this syllabus that was filled with texts that had a bunch of different things going on, and then Watership Down is kind of the one that has all of them going down (laughs) yes it's true and i don't know i feel like he taught me a lot about how to take things seriously even when they might not be your favorite thing i have a stronger appreciation for watership down now i knew it was a good book then but it was also tied up in a fair amount of resentment that knowing this book inside out and backwards was germane Mm -hmm. to my entire second year of university yeah Got to keep that scholarship. Yes. Well, and our jobs, Joe, remember our jobs had a GPA requirement too. (laughs) Yeah. It was like, it was stressful. And so I come back to Watership Down now, and I'm actually surprised at how much of the conversations from that class stuck. Yes. 
I mean, not that I remembered great portions of plot because I didn't. A lot of it felt really fresh to me. But thematically, things like the cycle of the hero, I could remember him lecturing to us about the cycle of the hero as I read this. And the sort of notion of fascism and complacency and Mm -hmm. violence and like all these ideas that he talked about and meant so much in the context of the text, that all came back to me reading this book. So I'm, I'm kind of excited to talk about it with you today, since you are also reading it 17 years on with mm-hmm. more adult eyes. Yeah, so gosh, I, I don't even know where to start. I guess we should start with a plot summary, hey? Yeah, uh, make sure that we said the name and the year it was published. Too. Oh yeah, we didn't. I don't think we said the author. So Watership Down is, I would say, the most famous of Richard Adams' books. Yeah. Um, first published in 1972 and adapted several times. We're going to talk mm-hmm. primarily today about the 1978 animated feature film. Yeah. But there was a TV series that ran in the late 90s and more recently a Netflix adaptation. last Just last year, right, Joe? Yeah, yeah, because uh, I remember when it came out, I debated whether or not we should do it then, but it was like literally in, I think, the first couple of weeks that we were doing this, and it just seemed like too much. Yeah, it would have been. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, we both watched the 1978 film for today. I watched a couple of episodes of this television series from the late 90s, and Joe watched a couple of episodes from the Netflix adaptation. So Correct. we've got, we quite got our bases covered. About. We do. And there is, in fact, Joe, I found out this in my reading for today's show. There's actually a sequel. Did you know that? I did. I actually own it, but I've never cracked it. So it's called Tales from Watership Down. It was published in 1996, and it's a collection of 19 short stories, um, half of them about sort of the religious world of the bunnies that makes up such an important component of Watership Down, and half about the rabbits of the Watership Down Warren. Okay. Yeah. So presumably after the events of this novel. Yes. Yeah. So okay. how their lives sort of unfolded after the fact. Oh, interesting. Okay. And I have to say, before I get into the plot summary, so we are going to spoil, obviously, as we always do, but Joe, mm-hmm. so I, <laughs> I 100% remembered Fiverr dying. Oh, and really? So okay. the whole time I was reading the book, I was emotionally bracing myself for Fiverr's death, which for some reason I remember as having been a very emotional part of my life. Interesting. And Fiverr does not die. No. Hazel dies at the end yes. of the book. But because I was still so braced for Fiverr's death, I almost didn't react to Hazel's death at the end of the book. Because I was like, oh, Fiverr's death is going to come and it's really going to get me after all this. (laughs) With one page left. Well, no, my version had like essays at the back and I didn't really realize where the book ended and where the... (laughs) I see. Okay. Anyway, let me move on to um, the plot. Oh, you go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I was certain that Bigwig died after all of the events with Ephrafa. Well, God. So I was actually very surprised that he didn't. Is there... I, I could not... I guess what I'm asking is, has a rabbit ever survived a snare outside of this novel? Because I know one of the things that people really laud this book for is the fact that all of the behaviors of the rabbits, with the exception of the part where they talk, (laughs) are based on actual rabbit behaviors. So he did a ton of research into how rabbits actually function. Yeah, and it comes through. It does. So there's a book called uh, The Private Life of the Rabbit from 1964, which was written by a naturalist. And Mm. that is the book that he based a lot of the wild rabbit's behavior on. I just can't imagine a situation where a rabbit gets snared the way Bigwig gets snared in that scene and actually survives it. No, 
I can't imagine it either, to be honest. No. And likewise, when Hazel is attacked and left in the ditch, or when he's shot, sorry, and left in the ditch, I was also like, a bunny can survive that too? Yeah, I don't think picking out the pellets would be enough. No, I'm guessing not after two days of the lead being in your bloodstream. But what do I know? I'm not a rabbit. Okay. Sure. <laughs> so let me Are do the sure? plot summary. I am sure. Sometimes I feel quite, my mom calls me the bunny. Aww. Yeah, I was born on Easter Sunday, so I have strong affinity for rabbits. Adorable. I know, right? I'm the cutest. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the book opens uh, in a rabbit warren, a rabbit warren called Sandalford Warren. And the first rabbit we meet in any sort of detail or any kind of, with any kind of sense that this person is important, or bunny is important, is Fiverr. Fiverr mm-hmm. is receiving these visions of the warren's destruction. And he's trying to convince people that they bunnies that they need to leave he's trying to convince his fellow bunnies that they have to go and the only person who believes him is his brother hazel and so hazel and fiverr go to the chief rabbit and they try to you know explain what it is that fiverr's visions are telling them and the chief rabbit doesn't take them seriously and a theme that recurs over and over again in the book is the arrogance of people in power yeah and their unwillingness to listen to information that doesn't confirm their worldview Mm mm-hmm Yeah, particularly if it challenges or threatens their own authority. Exactly. And we see that over and over. Basically, every single chief rabbit we meet in the book is like this. (laughs) Yeah, they're a bit dickish. They are. And they're also, like, the status quo is really important to all of the authorities we meet in the text. Yes. So obviously, that foreshadows the fact that the chief rabbit doesn't want to move the warren and so instead what happens is fiverr and hazel and a small group of rabbits who agree some of them because they believe fiverr but some of them because the structure of the rabbit warren and their life under this particular chief rabbit is just chafing so they all decide to escape together and really the story is sort of the story of Hazel and his discovery of leadership qualities in himself as he leads these bunnies into a new future. And sort of it's the story of Fiverr and his visions and the sense that you should trust people who are inherently good. And Fiverr is inherently good and he always sort of makes inherently good choices. And anytime you don't listen to Fiverr is when you come a cropper. Yeah, it was an interesting experience to reread it this time around because the character of Fiverr is, he's treated almost like a religious hysteric. Yes. There isn't exactly religion in the rabbit community, although they do have myths about a famous rabbit that they kind of model all of their behavior and there's lessons to be learned that will have direct impact on their situation moving forward. El Herrera. Thank you, because I could not pronounce that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm making it up, but it's okay because it's in names. bunny language. So who's going to correct me? The bunnies. <laughs> they know. They know all. <laughs> but I found it, I hate to say convenient because mm-hmm. we've talked about this before, how storytelling is storytelling. It doesn't mean that because something happens, it doesn't mean that it's convenience. It means that it was plotted this way. But the way in which Fiverr seems to always know what is right, mm-hmm. I don't know. It just didn't sit quite as well this time around mm. because it wasn't about lessons learned. It was like religious divination. Mm-hmm. So I found that a little bit off-putting this time. Yeah, I can see that. It's particularly interesting because 
The book is really strongly mapped on Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces, it's sort of popularly known as the monomyth theory. Mm-hmm. It's the same cycle of the hero that like Star Wars is based on and yeah. all of those stories and every Disney movie ever. <laughs> it's this idea of sort of an outsider, someone who seems like they are weak and unable to succeed, who discovers within themselves heroism right and there's different qualities that are sort of typical of the monomyth and different kinds of it's a literal cycle where they have to Mm -hmm. sort of go through a journey and come to a near perilous end and then survive to the other side go away and come back yeah and the whole thing and i think there's something about the way adams structures this novel where the hero is almost kind of broken into two because there's nothing really special about hazel right no almost literally nothing about hazel is special all of hazel's specialness is wrapped up in Fiverr, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Like what makes Hazel special is that he listens to Fiverr, that he's willing to engage with Fiverr. Um, And so it's almost like the two of them together are kind of like one hero. It's part of the lesson built into this book, right? It's that one person should not Mm -hmm. be a dictator. Mm -hmm. That is not a way to lead people. That's not the quality that a good leader imbues. Mm -hmm. It's that you should be democratic and look at the strengths of individuals. And if one of them should happen to have foresight into the future, (laughs) then you should definitely listen to that one. So the whole story is, it's the journey to find Watership Down, this place where they can be safe and Watership Down is sort of a a perfect place for rabbits to live because Mm -hmm. the dirt is easy to dig into. It has a good root structure for building warrens and also it's sort of at the cusp of a hill so they can see if anyone is coming who shouldn't be. So they can, they can graze for grass kind of without worrying because they'll see anyone who's approaching. Yeah. But once they get that place, there's this kind of sense of like, a recur- another recurring theme in the book is that you can't just settle for what is comfortable. You have to push yourself to find a situation in which you will thrive. And mm-hmm. in the case of the bunnies from Watership Down, they have to venture out to find some does because they're all boy bunnies and an all boy rabbit warren doesn't last more than one generation, obviously. Yeah. So they have to go out and find does. And the second part of the book, well, I guess it's, yeah, it's the second part. Yeah. They have to go out and find does and they try two different options they go to a farm where they find some Mm -hmm. does who have been like they're hutch rabbits they call them so rabbits who've lived in captivity their whole lives and that's not a wildly successful outing (laughs) and then they realize that there's this place called Ephrafa, which is basically a police state led by a horrible evil general named general woundwort and what they what they know about that place from their emissaries is that the does there are no longer able to reproduce because the the warren is too crowded. And so rabbits, if they live in a space that's too crowded and a female rabbit gets pregnant, she basically reabsorbs the fetus because evolution has decided that they're, it's not going to allow babies to be born where they can't thrive. And so yeah. the does, for the does, that's a really traumatic experience in Adam's telling. And so they want to break free. They want to relocate to another warren, which is typical rabbit behavior, right? When a warren gets too big, some of the bunnies will go and start their own warren. Mm -hmm. General Woundwort won't allow that to happen. So Hazel and his merry band of bunnies go Mm -hmm. to try to liberate some of the does, which ends with an incredibly violent skirmish, both at Ephrafa and then later on at Watership Down. They get hunted back to Watership Down by the Ephrafan bunnies. But in the end, they succeed 
through what is the deusist of deus ex machina. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's a dog and a cat and a farm girl. And between the dog and the cat and the farm girl, the bad people are vanquished and the good survive. And actually all of the bunnies make it to the end of the book and Hazel dies of old age, having successfully sort of completed his life's mission. Yeah, which in bunny years would be about two to four years. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's a hell of a time to be alive for a bunny. I feel like part of the reason that this book works is because if you know anything about bunnies, you know that they do live to procreate because a mm-hmm. uh, fun fact about me that listeners probably don't know, we actually had rabbits growing up and we thought that they were all one sex. They were not. <laughs> and we had a lot of bunnies all of a sudden. Oh my God. How many bunnies did you have? 42. F- four two? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we started with six. We thought that they were all male. Three were female, three were male, 42 rabbits later. OM jeepers. Yeah, it was not a good scene. So I can only imagine how crowded a warren would have to be because these rabbits were in pretty close proximity to each other. (laughs) (laughs) But they also don't last, right? Yeah. We had a hare in the mix uh, because we had picked her up from an odd and unusual animal auction. (laughs) I grew up in Calgary, but it's we would drive out to a place outside of town on a farm and they would have this weird auction of different animals that were unique. Yeah. That's an incredibly Alberta story. Sorry, do go on. <laughs> yeah, so we ended up picking up this one rabbit that was... And it turned out the bunnies were Western separatists. <laughs> it's true. They wanted more money for their oil. <laughs> no, one of those rabbits was a hare, which we should have realized because she was massive. She was probably <laughs> about a foot long by the time she became an adult. Just gorgeous. Oh, she was so pretty. But... um Yeah, so we ended up with a bunch of rabbits, but they don't last long. Like, she was the one who lasted the longest because she wasn't a hutch rabbit. Yeah, I think hares have longer lives. And then I think she only lasted, I think, six years. And we were told that was a very long life for a rabbit. Yeah, it is a very long life for a rabbit. I really, I'm, mm, I know you said you didn't want to make a podcast with your mom, but I really would like to hear this story from your parents' perspective. Oh, you'd get a different perspective if it was from my mom versus my dad. Mom was not happy. My dad wanted to go get a fainting goat and a potbelly pig the next year. <laughs> Your dad and I could hang. What did oh. you do with the 42 rabbits, Joe? I mean, we'll get back to Watership Down eventually, but what do the listeners really want to hear about? Your 42 bunnies. What did you do with right? them? So we ended up giving a couple of them away to friends and neighbors, but we ended up donating most of them to pet stores. Oh, wow. Yeah, where they were rebranded oh, God. as... <laughs> uh it was so disingenuous folks this is why you should never buy pets from a pet store adopt don't shop adopt don't shop exactly (laughs) they were rebranded as specialty bread rabbits (laughs) like as if there even is such a thing oh god i can't breathe that's hilarious i think they charge like 30 dollars for these we were like we've got 40 more of them if you want (laughs) Oh, I bet the baby bunnies were real cute, though. Oh, my gosh. They were so cute. We actually also had a dwarf rabbit in the mix who was pure white. So the babies from his litters were very, very cute because they had soft white fur. Little puff balls. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, good times, Joe. Very fun. Yeah. Huh. Know what's not so much fun? What? The amount of violence and death (gasps) in this book. (laughs) Oh, my God. 
And actually, maybe this is a good point to introduce the film as well. Yes. Because we don't really have a ton to talk about in the film. No. It's a pretty straight adaptation. Yeah. I'll play yeah. the trailer and then we'll just talk about both. Cool. Okay. It's a beautiful day. All is calm and peaceful in the meadow. Or is it? If you look closely, very closely, you'll discover a whole new world with a world of difference, full of exciting adventure and desperate conflict. We've got to go away from the Warren, all of us. Go away? Yes, before it's too late. Is there something wrong? What's he on about? They're coming. A world of ruthless tyranny and brave rebellion. I'll settle with you myself, big week. Come on and try, you crack-brained slave driver. A world of incredible courage and mortal fear. A terrible thing is coming. What do you mean? The field. It's covered with blood. A world which bears a very curious resemblance to our own so-called human world in many ways. You're all under arrest. What do you mean? What for? Spreading dissension, inciting to mutiny. Watership Down, the best-selling novel, which has been magically transformed into the most unusual and provocative film you're ever likely to see. What are you doing out there? I've come to let you out. Will you come with us? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, We're all right here. Yes. There he goes. <laughs> So, as you mentioned, Brenna, the film is from 1978, and it was directed by Martin Rosen, and it does have at least a couple famous people in here. The most famous person that I recognize was John Hurt, is the voice of Hazel. yep. And, yeah, there's some other, I think they're well-known, but these are 70s British actors, so I'll admit they're not exactly my forte. No, I would say there's a lot of people you saw in Shakespeare adaptations in high school showing up in this adaptation. A lot of theater actors from my my general clicking around. Yeah. Well, the new miniseries that Netflix did was very prestigious. I don't care for the animation. The new one looks kind of, it's very like CGI computer generated-y. I don't know. It kind of looks like a teenager made it on their home computer. So I didn't love the look of the new one, but the voice cast in the new one is really, really good. It's like James McAvoy and Olivia Coleman and like the cream of the crop of British actors right now. So good voice acting in the new one, but it looks like hot garbage. The old one is in traditional 2D, uh, hand-drawn, and it's stunning. The animation is lovely. Even in the um, 1999 adaptation, which was a British-Canada co-production, even in that one, which was like a 39-episode TV show for children, 22 Minutes of Pop, it has Stephen Fry and uh, Don French. John Hurt reprises this role. So, yeah, it's really interesting how, you know, you've got such a beloved text, such a long pedigree of its use that, like, yeah, apparently it brings all the stars to the yard. I do love it, though, because there's nothing particularly British about the text. Except that it's so quintessentially British. <laughs> but 
I mean, in the way that the story. No, I, I is totally told, get what you're saying. Right? It's mapped directly onto Joseph Campbell. It's intended to be a very universal story, but like mm-hmm. the landscape and descriptions, like it could only be England. Yeah. The fact that these rabbits, the only predators they have are men and foxes. Yeah. And murderous other bunnies that's basically it like it's very english and it's just the landscapes that are being described the distances between places mm-hmm. it's just all sort of quintessentially british in a way that i can't imagine what this would sound like with american voiceover actors like i just feel like it would be really jarring well i'm actually shocked that they didn't try but this is not a well-known text here in no. north america from what I've gathered. When I told people we were reading this for our one-year anniversary, people said, oh, why didn't you pick a better-known book? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I mean, I'm curious, actually, now, now that I've said this and I realize most of our listeners are in North America, mm-hmm. I'd be curious to know if you folks had actually heard of this or read it before now. It's interesting because the book itself, it took him, like, se- it took Richard Adams, like, seven times, seven tries to find a publisher for it. Hmm. And he ended up being published by a really small press in London, like literally a small press, like it was one guy who ran the publishing house. Oh, it was wow. called Rex Collings Publishers, and it was because the publisher was a guy named was Rex, Rex Collins? Collings. <laughs> 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 but he he couldn't pay Adams in advance for the book. He couldn't do anything except that he promised that he would put a review copy of the book on every desk in London that mattered. That was a direct quote in a letter that Collings wrote to Adams. Hmm. and he did that's what he did and the book i mean it worked it rocketed to i mean it was hugely popular at the time and hugely popular ever since it's been translated into 18 languages you know this is this is a book that has within sort of the tradition of british literature has absolutely ascended to the to the place of a classic uh, mm-hmm. but it's funny to think i love those stories you know where like it's it's a work of classic literature that almost didn't make it <sighs> What could be more compelling than that, right? It's the true. underdog story. It's the hero myth itself. It's true. And if we want to talk about, well, we've got a minute, awards. It did win the Carnegie Medal in 1972, Best Children's Book by a British Subject. Um, it won the Guardian Children's Fiction Prize in 1972. Every author can only win that once, no matter how many books you publish. So that was, uh. yeah. In California, it won the first, it was the first book to ever um, win the California Young Reader Medal. It was named one of the greatest books of all time in a 2003 survey of the British public. So like, yeah, it's a, it's it's a heck a of a book. Deal. It's a bit of a big deal. So yeah, it is funny though. It's one of those books that is, I think for British kids, probably a mainstay of their childhood reading. Right. I knew of it, but I had never read it before we took that class. But that class was definitely highly influenced by the British literary tradition. Yeah. But I do think it's one of those books that just didn't really translate into the U.S. for whatever reason. Hmm. Which is weird because a lot of critics have written about how Watership Down is an allegory for struggles against the Cold War, fascism, extremism, materialism. You'd think it would be prime for an 80s American audience, but... Yeah. No. So aside from the obvious fact that this is telling an eternal, very relatable story, what do you think... I don't know, like, what is it that people gravitate to in this? Because you, you mentioned it's got a ton of really timely, relevant themes. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a way in for us. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it is a universal hero story in a lot of ways. I think one of the nice things about it, although we'll talk about 
gender in the book and how mm -hmm. very, very male this story is. <laughs> but I do think anytime you use animals, anthropomorphic animals as your main characters, you create a universal experience, right? Right. Because there's nothing preventing you from putting yourself in the place of this rabbit where, you know, class and culture and race and gender and all these kinds of other distinctions when we have human subjects maybe get in the way. Right. So I think that's part of it. I also think there's something really lovely about the way the book pushes sometimes gently and sometimes very, very harshly against the idea <laughs> of comfort, against the idea of settling for a complacent comfort, right? Yeah. So over and over again in the text, what we see is that the rabbits have the opportunity to settle for something that would be pleasing in the short term, but troubling in the long term. Like, for example, mm -hmm. the first farm they come across, Cowslip's Farm, where mm -hmm. the warren is beautiful, the food is plentiful, the rabbits are all happy and placid, and yet... Uh, more placid than happy. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And yet uh, Fiverr is very, very scared and very, very uncomfortable the whole time they're there. And everybody's going, shut up, Fiverr. Like, there's finally decent food. Why you got a harsh armello all the time? Yeah, like, we have found a paradise. Why would we ever consider leaving? And, of course, it turns out that the reason why this place is paradise is because, yeah, once in a while, a couple of bunnies die. They're being kept on what feels like a natural warren, but is really a farm. Mm -hmm. and that's when Bigwig gets himself snared and they discover that the way the other bunnies deal with the violence all around them is to ignore it right when mm -hmm. Fiverr says Bigwig is in a snare we have to go and help him Cowslip basically tells everyone to just ignore it but he just look away this reminded me so much of the conversation that we had had about the lottery <gasps> yes this is one of the big things that occurred to me this time, as opposed to when we first read this back in 2002. Mm -hmm. This idea that people could stay in a place and willingly submit to something for the creature comforts, mm -hmm. but knowing that it was also killing at least people that they knew, but yep. possibly them, they just didn't know when. Yep. And just willingly accepting that. Yeah, this idea of like, what are you willing to trade for comfort? What are you willing to trade for? Uh, what are you willing to trade to not have to work, right? Because that's the mm -hmm. real attraction of this place is that the food is just there. And, you know, finding food for bunnies is scary. Like they can die anytime they go out to look for food and they have to eat a lot because they're herbivores, right? And that's a constant mm -hmm. thing in the text is, is Hazel trying to find safe places for them to feed and trying to make sure they've fed enough before dark and like... These bunnies don't have to worry about that at all. So what are you willing to trade for that? And mm -hmm. these bunnies are willing to trade literally everything for it. Yeah. And not only that, but the willingness of the other rabbits, even within Hazel's group, to ignore Fiverr's warning once again, which I found a little bit frustrating this read through because I was like, guys, you know that Fiverr is right. You knew he was right last time. You know he's right this time. You know you're going to have to listen. Just do it. Yeah, it gets increasingly more frustrating as the book goes on. Mm -hmm. But I think Adams is also fairly smart because really, at the end of the day, what we've got are three different warrens, like three different situations of dysfunctional leadership and different types of problems. So mm -hmm. we've got the original Sandalford, we've got Cowslip, and then we've got Ephrapha, and then we've got Watership Down as this like shining beacon in the mm -hmm. distance. Mm -hmm. But I think Adams is really smart. Like I remember going into this thinking, okay, so 
they reach Watership Town at the end of the book, and that is like that's the destination. And the book is a journey through all these different dysfunctional systems. So imagine my surprise when they get to Waterford Down halfway through the book. Yes. <laughs> I think Adams is really smart by doing it this way because that way it doesn't become overbearing to have these bunnies disregard Fiverr mm. again and again and again. Mm-hmm. It's just through the first half until they realize, oh, he did get us to where we need to go. And then their situation changes and the narrative becomes something different. Like I had forgotten that there was a second battle with Ephrafa. I mm-hmm. thought once they got on the river and they were down that they were fine. Mm-hmm. Like I thought that was kind of the end of the book. <laughs> oh no, it gets much more violent after that. Oh yeah, there's a whole siege that we got to get through. Yes. Yeah, and the bunny violence is like, I, I know that he has based that on real bunny behavior. But I cannot imagine. It's hard to imagine. Bunnies are so cute. <laughs> but then you read about like warrens that are sort of overrun and the kind of the reasons mm-hmm. why male rabbits move on to new warrens. Like, but this is like one of the most violent books we've read in the course of this show. Which is shocking because you tell people like, oh, I've never heard of Watership Day. And what's it about? About a bunch of bunnies who are trying to get to a new home. Oh, so sweet. <laughs> no. No, it is not. This book and the movie have traumatized generations. The movie... uh, Yeah, I think we need to talk about how violence is handled in both. Because Adams Mm -hmm. is incredibly graphic in his depictions of violence in this book. Yeah, to the point that I didn't even know who this book was for. (laughs) There were several times where I thought, this can't be written with any children, even young adults, in mind. Because it is so graphic. Oh god, the scene where he's describing what bigwig looks like in the snare yeah no it's legit turned my stomach legit turned my stomach yeah yeah because you can imagine what an animal who is trapped will do i do enjoy the contrast of the religious divination of fiverr he is forthcoming and he is using his powers for good whereas in cowslips warren the reverence for the golden snare Mm -hmm. is very scary and nefarious Mm -hmm. so then you see that embodied in the literal figure of bigwig no you know that golden snare can only mean death i thought his back was broken the way he was describing (laughs) it's really awful and in the film it's equally disturbing yes but not as bad as what's to come (laughs) no that's true it gets much more violent this is the thing so joe this film is rated g G. yes so there is a rating system in place we tend to think of it as a north american system but there's variations of it all across the world the lowest level of the rating system is g which means that it is acceptable for all ages g literally means general audiences right yes it does yes Now, obviously, we are talking about a film that was made in 1978. Times were different. When kids were tough and men were men. I guess so. (laughs) Though, I will say, when I posted that I was watching this on Twitter, the number of responses, it was not, you know, oh, beloved classic Watership Down. It was, I saw this movie too young, and I had nightmares. How could you not And it's not even like, haha, I had nightmares. It was like, I had nightmares. No, I know. How could you not? And it's fascinating to me because the British Board of Film Classification, so their G is called a U. And when they gave it the U rating, they said, this is a direct quote, okay? Mm-hmm. Whilst, because they're British, whilst the <laughs> film... <laughs> 
Whilst the film may move children emotionally during the film's duration, it could not seriously trouble them once the spell of the story is broken, and a U certificate certificate is therefore quite appropriate. Of course. You've got to be kidding me. No, you walk out of the theater and it's like it just all evaporates out of your mind. I dreamed some of these images the night after (laughs) I watched this movie. Like, they're graphic. Yeah. Okay, so let's just get it out on the table. So the scene at the end when Woonwort and his Ephrafa bunnies, the Ausla, and some young whippersnappers who want to advance in the ranks, they end up trying to attack Watership Down. And they try a bunch of different ways, and Hazel and his friends realize very quickly that they're not going to survive this despite their attempts to plan ahead. So Fiverr has a vision of the dog from the farm being Mm -hmm. loose. Mm -hmm. So a bunch of them set out and they basically lure the dog back to Watership Down and the dog just decimates the Afrofa bunnies. And Mm -hmm. you can imagine what a dog would do to a rabbit and it's deeply upsetting. You don't need to imagine it because they made this film. (laughs) Oh my God. It's an animated film. So you would think, oh, it can't be that bad. It's worse. It is... Abs- like, I, I texted you, Brenna. I mm-hmm. said, I think this is worse than a lot of things I've seen in actual horror films. Mm-hmm. This dog is shaking rabbits. Oh, There's God. blood pouring all over the place. Yes. And down them, you just see bunny corpses littering Everywhere. the ground. It's kind of insane. The only thing that I appreciated was the restraint shown in not showing what happens to Woundwort, which, of course, is part of the story. Because they don't ever find his body and he goes on to become a legend in his own right. Yes. But everything to do with what happens on the top of that down is... Like, I can't imagine even showing that to my nieces and nephews and their double digits. Yeah. No, it's absolutely horrifying. And you had texted me to warn me, and I was still completely shocked by how graphic it is Mm -hmm. and how violent. And it's interesting because the 1999 Canada-Britain co-production TV series is not like that at all. It's very very soft and sweet, and there's a lot more conflict, but they're mini conflicts because there's like a conflict per episode kind of thing. And the number one comment that recurs, so all of the whole series is on YouTube. You can go check it out, the whole series. And the number one comment that recurs at the bottom of every single episode is, watched this show as a kid, loved it, found out there was a movie, (laughs) watched the movie, was deeply, profoundly scarred. Well, yeah, even when they announced that TV show, I think there were a bunch of people who came out and said, okay, if you're going to go ahead with this, you can't make it like that movie was. Yeah. Despite the U rating and people saying, oh, this is a classic, I think the impact was acknowledged decades later when people said, we should not be showing this movie to kids. It is not appropriate. And even just like the poster. Looks like a bunny screaming. It's Bigwig trapped in the (laughs) snare. That's what the poster is an image of. They've all, they've cleaned up. There's no blood like there is in the movie version, but like that's what, that's what the shot is of. So crazy. It's so crazy. It's so crazy that it's G-rated. I will say, like, if we can step back from the violence for a second, mm-hmm. yeah, the film itself is gorgeous. Oh my gosh, it's it's almost like watercolor paintings. Those backgrounds literally are watercolor paintings. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, look at me. <laughs> yeah, um, it's incredibly beautiful, and I loved the way the rabbits were animated. They mm-hmm. move like rabbits. They don't move like Bugs Bunny. Like they move like actual real rabbits move. 
Yeah. Obviously, except for the parts where they're talking. But the rest of the time, their body motion, it looks as almost as if actual rabbits have been rotoscoped. It's so sort of perfectly on point. Mm. That was actually one of my criticisms of the new Netflix Mm. version. They move okay, but the design is such that you can barely tell the rabbits apart. Oh, And I'm pretty good with accents, but despite the all-star cast, I had a lot of difficulty distinguishing which character was whom. They also changed a bunch of them around, so that was also not helpful. That's too bad because uh, that's... Blueberry does not come with them initially, so that's not helpful. That's something the film does really well, actually. It's sort of amazing that you can distinguish all these rabbits apart, considering... Mm -hmm. And it was a pretty low-budget film, is my understanding, right? I think it was a couple million. Yeah, and I... maybe a couple million pounds. I read somewhere that it made, like, a 5,000% return on investment. Yeah, so they had to independently finance. So they got a bunch of private financiers to kick in, and apparently people were getting like 50 times return on their investment it's amazing it did very well which i think is a testament to the popularity of the book right like Mm -hmm. people wanted to see this realized as a film i do find it fascinating i don't know how else you could do it but the fact that they have always done this as an animated film yeah i'm shocked that they haven't tried to make it happen in some terrible cats i was gonna way. say don't cats this movie please don't cats this movie i mean don't cats any movie that don't cats looks cats. like hot garbage it really does <laughs> it really does i think too one of the things that i liked about the film well i think i i messaged this to you was the way that fiverr's dreams and oh, the yeah. religious stories were mm-hmm. rendered with like a very different kind of art style it was almost sort of surrealist i can't i really can't if you haven't seen the film I really encourage you to just Google a few scenes on YouTube just to get, <laughs> not the violent ones, but just get, a sense of, <laughs> just get a sense of the visuals because they really are. It's like every single frame is a watercolor painting. And then mm-hmm. with the dream sequences, it's something else entirely <sighs> that I find hard to describe. Yeah. When I tweeted that I was watching the film, I actually included a gif of the scene where Fiverr is telling Hazel that, you know, the hills were covered in blood. Yeah. <laughs> this is a... It's for children. (laughs) (laughs) But even just the way that that is animated, where it's just a slow creeping line of blood running down a hill in the distance, it's haunting, but really gorgeous. Utterly marvelous. Just beautiful. I mean, even the violent scenes are, I think part of what makes them so shocking is that they are so beautifully rendered and Mm -hmm. also so grisly. Well, and it's easy to get invested in these. Like in both, I'll confess, I had a really hard time getting into Adam's cadence when I first started to read mm, this. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of bunny jargon and they're talking about weird stuff. Yeah. So for those who haven't read the book, Adam's actually develops a language for the rabbits that's called Lapine. I mean, it's very Tolkien-ish in the way that it it's is. very consistent, very carefully developed. Mm-hmm. It seems to be some sort of combination of like Arabic and Welsh. So it feels really ancient when the rabbits are speaking to each other. Um, And he doesn't always translate. He'll translate the first few times, but he doesn't translate common words that they use. We just have to learn them in their context. And uh, once he's translated it for you once, you don't get the translation again. You have to remember. So that part of it is hard. Yeah. But it's the kind of hard lesson that to come back to Lovejoy's class, more broadly speaking, 
it shows not just the depth of what YA authors are working with, mm -hmm. but also the expectations that they have of their audience mm -hmm. that if you're going to invest and come on this journey with me, you're going to have to put in some hard work. Yes. Yes. And that it will be worth it. Like you are owed a certain amount of payoff that I think Adams really delivers on in this text. And I think that's mm -hmm. part of what makes it such a classic is that you do have to work really hard for the first few chapters to get in. Yeah. And then once you're away, you really are away. Well, and then you're into it, right? Yeah. Like one of the things I came to appreciate the most is the way that Hazel and Bigwig interact with each other. So Bigwig is a member of the Ausla back at Sandalford Warren, where they originated. And that meant that he was kind of like the security yeah. of the king rabbit. Yeah. And that meant that he got special privileges, but it also meant that he was a fighter and he's bigger. So he's also more well-fed compared to Hazel, who is just, you know, an everyday bunny. Yes. And throughout the book, it often seems like the true conflict is not these other Warrens that they're engaging with, but rather who is jostling for leadership of this new Warren that they're going to set up at Watership Down. And Bigwig challenges Hazel repeatedly, but he always does it in a way that feels true without slipping into that oh he's just the antagonist like he's mean he's annoying he's frustrating right yes yes i came to love bigwig oh, so much yes. on this reread because he's doing what he thinks is right so he's challenging hazel when he thinks he doesn't have a plan or when he's not paying attention or he's when he's not being aggressive enough and the truth is is that hazel makes a lot of mistakes with his leadership style yes he does yes he does because the whole book is about him realizing the best way to become a democratic leader mm -hmm. and big way is an instrumental part of that like fiverr is the one who drives the narrative in terms of like this is when we need to stop this is when we need to start this is what you need to pay attention to. But Bigwig is the one who helps Hazel to realize what kind of leader he will become. Mm -hmm. And I just love that. And it's it's really Bigwig's confidence in Hazel that allows him to be that leader, right? Mm -hmm. So Fiverr is the one he wants to make sort of proud. Like he wants to do the right thing by Fiverr. But yeah. Bigwig is the one who he wants to be worthy of leading. Like mm -hmm. he wants to know that Bigwig will follow him. And when he gets that, that validation... That's everything to Hazel's character arc. Yeah. 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 And that's why I think it becomes, at the end of the day, it almost becomes Bigwig's story, right? He's mm -hmm. the one who breaks into Ephrafa and has to do the dangerous job of sneaking these does out. Mm -hmm. He's the one who ends up becoming the main adversary to General Woonwort. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's the one who almost dies multiple times for this group. And it's so important, too, that that is what ultimately allows our bunnies to succeed over Woundwort's bunnies because Bigwig is injured. Mm -hmm. He has very little strategy left. And Hazel is en route to hopefully find a solution with the cats yeah. and the dog. But Bigwig doesn't know if he's going to succeed. And so Bigwig has dug himself into the wall of the Warren to try to protect himself. And he says to General Woundwort, just wait until our chief rabbit gets here mm -hmm. and Woundward and is like is the first that Woundward has ever heard of him. yeah and Woundward is like oh my god so you are one of the biggest strongest rabbits mm -hmm. i've ever come across of course your chief rabbit must be bigger and mm -hmm. stronger still right yeah. that's not what happens at all no. the reason why Woundward is foiled is because hazel is clever and quick and yeah. 
understands how to make use of the natural world around them. That's a big mm-hmm. part of it too, is that Hazel's leadership is rooted in an understanding of nature, of bunny nature, of how things are right. supposed to be, right? Yeah. Cowslips Warren is unnatural because they don't hunt for their food in the in a typical bunny way. They don't gather in a typical bunny way. Mm-hmm. And Woundwort's Warren is unnatural because he won't allow the bunnies to move out on their own. Or even to like go out and feed at regular times. Exactly. Like everything is so dictated. Like it is, it's a dictatorship. And really what we keep learning over and over and over again is that what is natural is what is good, sort of mm-hmm. unproblematically so in this book and in, in the yes. film adaptations. <laughs> and likewise, you know, the, the villain is always man. The villain is always progress. The villain is development, right? Like the loss of the first warrant is 100% because it gets developed for a property development, right? Uh, which feels all too real in oh like this God. day and age of 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you did mention problematic. Yeah. Did you want to talk about the gender issues in this book? I had totally forgotten. And you know what? I had forgotten completely. <laughs> <laughs> I was so angry this entire book. I was yeah. like, okay, so we're just not going to do lady bunnies. And nope. this, we're not going to have does. Like, and then it becomes a plot point to such an effect that you think, okay, well, when we get introduced to them, at le- you know, we've got names, we've got Clover, we've got mm-hmm. those other ones I can't pronounce. Mm-hmm. You at least think that they will become characters, that they will become active agents in this story. Mm-hmm. And you would be wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a deeply frustrating component of the book that only male bunnies go with Hazel in the first place. And that doesn't seem to be true. Because when bunnies set out to establish new warrens, they have to take does with them it doesn't make sense that it would only be mm-hmm. male bunnies who would go out and start new warrens so that part was frustrating from the beginning and as a result because adams doesn't care we never get to invest in any of the female rabbits who we do come across and there are moments where those characters the female bunnies in Ephrafa, they have really interesting stories right they've lived in this incredibly mm-hmm. abusive space where they've not been, again, they've not been allowed to fulfill their, their what they perceive to be their natural function. They've gone through what Adams describes as an incredibly traumatic process of constantly having to reabsorb these baby bunnies. There's all this stuff about them that should be compelling and interesting, but Adams doesn't give us any time to get to know them as characters. Mm. And he's ultimately, it's ultimately because he's not interested in them. He wants to get on with Bigwig's adventure. He wants to get back to Hazel's story. And while both of those are compelling, I don't understand why in a 500-page book where we meet approximately 94,000 rabbits, (laughs) we only get names for like three female rabbits and we don't get anything more than that. No, there's a glimmer. The does in Ephrafa mm-hmm. have been... Yes, they've been rebels. They've been attempting to incite rebellion on their own. Like, why don't we get more of that? <laughs> <sighs> yeah, it's kind of hilarious. And uh, so I'm looking this up on Wikipedia right now, and apparently he was criticized for this. Good. In part because it turns out that rabbits are actually matriarchal. So he's actively chosen to disregard that natural element of which he's been so careful to tread in all these other regards, which is very, like, I can't imagine being a young girl and reading this and seeing, oh, my life is a baby-making factory. 
Yes. Because really, these are not rabbits, people. We're talking about human beings. Yes. <laughs> and that's the thing, right? Hazel and his bunnies, they only become interested in having female rabbits around to procreate. Mm -hmm. There's not even a sense of... Like, it's not that we need women in here for the betterment of the community or the conversation. No. It's like, we need to make babies. Because even the one social function that female rabbits provide, which is that they dig the warrens, the male rabbits learn how to do it instead so they don't have to have women. It's really weird. The but whole they complain really... about it. <laughs> yeah, they complain about having to do it and they get bored halfway through, which is, you know, fair. But um, yep. I was really frustrated by that aspect of the text because it seems so unnecessary yeah it seems very deliberate i couldn't help but wonder again if we're thinking about context if this was a particularly 1970s british yeah. male who runs the world man yeah. it's definitely you know if it doesn't bother you that none of the hobbits are women it's probably not going to bother you that none of the rabbits are women like i think yeah. there's been a long history this is a tradition. of adventure stories where only men's adventures matter. Yeah. But it's the only part of this book that in 2019, I feel like makes it feel old. Mm -hmm. Everything else about it feels like it could have been written yesterday, except this sort of pesky thing where women are people and exist. I will say there's a weirdness, almost like an uncanny what dissonance that comes when you watch the netflix one because olivia coleman is voicing strawberry oh strawberry is a boy rabbit for those who have yeah. not followed along weird yeah it's very odd the other interesting thing so just looking at further down on the wikipedia apparently there are female rabbits who get to play more prominent roles in tales from watership down and okay. some people have speculated that this was in response to the criticism oh that's good so he might have learned his lesson that's good. The other thing that makes it feel a little bit old, and we've talked about this on so many episodes, <laughs> everybody stop writing accents. Just stop it. Oh my goodness. Speaking about the gull, of course. <laughs> yes, who we have not named. Uh, uh, so Kahar is Kahar. a gull that Bigwig befriends. He, like the rabbits, he's actually found himself isolated from his community. He has gotten injured and as a result he wasn't able to fly presumably south do birds fly south in I think the so. uk yeah it feels right <laughs> i don't know yeah so they end up using this gull but he has i can't recall what his accent is likened to in the text but in the movie they make him sound jamaican yeah and it's not good it's it, not we're talking jar jar good. binks levels of badness feels pretty racist yeah. and i'm not sure like i'm not sure what his accent is supposed to be in the book except that i know it's clearly supposed to be some sort of quote exotic unquote quote other unquote and mm -hmm. it's bad it's just bad yeah and it's also really difficult to read oh it's so difficult to read just skip it yeah I skipped because all most of the time I'm like, it just doesn't matter, right? Yeah, You're no. like, the narrative will tell me what is happening. I don't yeah. need to read his encounters. No, they're terrible. They're really bad. Yeah. I've got a trivia for you. Okay. What you got? In intersection of Brenna's interests, there was an episode of Robot Chicken way back <laughs> in the day where they did a parody of Watership Down using all the characters from Fraggle Rock. Mm. And it's pretty... I would generously term it on PC because it was an episode of Robot Chicken. But Ooh, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, I love me some Rodership Down and I love me some Fraggle. So I have watched that a few times. Mm -hmm. The other thing is there are six 
audiobook adaptations of Watership Down. What? Really? Yep. Most recently, uh, one came out this year with an actual forward by the author, a uh, new forward by the author. Oh, he's still alive. He is still alive. I assumed he was dead. I did too. But Peter Capaldi narrates it. (gasps) Yes. For 17 and a half hours. Oh my gosh. Okay. (laughs) That is a lot. It is a lot. It's it's too much, probably. But yeah, that's about average. There's, um, in the 90s, it came out, a version came out on cassette tape, and it was 11 cassettes. (laughs) Oh, cassettes. Remember, is 22 sides. That is too much. That is a lot. I mean, this is a long text. It's a long text. I won't lie. Reading this in a week was, again, not an ideal way to consume this text. But I have fond memories of reading this the first time and discovering, like a lot of YA books, you could read this, you could watch the movie, and you could say, that was a cute book about rabbits. Mm Mm-hmm. Or you could take the time and the energy and you could write a PhD dissertation about the political systems at work in this book. Yes, you totally could. You totally could. I read one uh, review. I think it was a contemporary review from The Guardian, which talked about how this is a book about how well-behaved English parliamentary believing rabbits (laughs) learn (laughs) to fight against fascism, which kind of is. Yeah. It was fun to have the conversations with my husband, Brian, telling him like, okay, so I'm at this part where this Warren is doing this, and this Warren is meant to be this type of political system. This is why this leadership style is really bad. And yeah. he was like, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. What's the one that they end up in? And I was like, mm-hmm. democracy, <laughs> I think. Basically, <laughs> sort of. <sighs> where ladies are baby makers? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, Verna. Yeah? You want to play some anniversary bingo? I do. Bingo! I have one more piece of trivia before we do. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, so the um, theme song for the film is Bright Eyes, sung by Art Garfunkel. Yes. And it became a UK number one the year the movie was released. Okay. <laughs> and Richard Adams hates the song more than anything else in the world. Ah, okay. <laughs> and they reused it again for the TV theme song. Oh, really? Yep, they sure did. It's not my favorite. No, it's not. I like Simon and Garfunkel, but it was not my favorite. It's an odd choice. Mm-hmm. Part of the problem is that it's because it's a movie from the 70s, the musical breaks are extremely long and involved. Yeah. <laughs> like you hear the entirety of Bright Eyes, I think twice over the course of the film, and it's not a long film. No. 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 All right. Okay. Bingo it is. Bingo! Not a good bingo. All right. So... What kind of things do you have on your list? I feel like Vancouver might not make an appearance. No, not this time. Not this time. I have abuse. <laughs> In what way? Several Warrens that are profoundly abusive. Yeah. I have gaslighting for mm-hmm. cowslip. I would actually even argue the way that Woundwort runs his Warren because Ooh. he's not telling everybody everything. That's true. And he's also keeping them segregated. I'd buy that. That's true. And then unlikely friendships, like literally unlikely friendships, like between a gull and a rabbit. Oh, okay. Yeah, I went with Hazel and Bigwig because they would normally never hang out. And then allusions to classic literature. So every single chapter of this book opens with a quote either from Joseph Campbell's Year of With a Thousand Faces or one of the Greek myths or Hamlet or the Bible. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot. 
Yeah, I couldn't tell if I appreciated that or if I just felt like it was being erudite for erudite's sake. I skipped a lot of them. I skipped a lot of them as well. (laughs) We're bad readers. We're bad readers. No, it just got to the point where I was like, okay, I need to like continue on with this. Mm -hmm. Get me to where I need to go. You know, if I had time, if I was reading it on my own in a leisurely fashion, that's the kind of thing that I actually really enjoy. Like I love to read an epigram and then sort of look it up and try to figure out like how it fits the chapter, blah, blah, blah. But I did not have time for that. This book is 500 pages. Yeah. (laughs) I did read all the footnotes though, because when he includes a footnote, it's often quite helpful. Yes. Yes. Well, it's usually translating some lapine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or telling us about real rapid behavior. I think the one that I appreciated the most is that they stamp for danger. Yeah. I was like, "Uh, yeah, I have actually seen that. (laughs) One of your 42 bunnies tried that? You know what, Brent? I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) Uh, Okay, I'm going to throw in some stunt casting because we have them British famous people. That's true. You don't think of Watership Down as being a prestige project, and then you look at the casting of even, as I say, even the half-hour kids' TV version, and you realize, oh, this is a prestige project. Yeah, it's basically Harry Potter before Harry Potter. Every Mm -hmm. British person wanted to be involved with this. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm not sure if we want to call Fiverr's visions supernatural elements. Might be a bit of a stretch. Well, it's a bit of a stretch, except for the way they're depicted in the film version. I think I would definitely buy it. They're almost apocalyptic. Yes, in the they film, are. They which are. is part of what makes them so great looking. Yeah, it's true. And then on a similar vein, we could call his ability to predict the future convenient expertise, but that could just be, again, a stretch. I think that one's too much of a stretch. I'm not going to give you that one. All right, then. <laughs> Fine. Fine to you, good lady. Uh, that's that's really about all I had. Yeah, okay. So that was Watership Down, folks, and that was the end of year one. Mm-hmm. If you want to get a hold of us, you can find us on the Twitters at hashtag HKHSpod. Joe, how can they get a hold of you to hear more bunny stories? <laughs> you can reach out to me at bstolemyremote, and that's the letter B. And I'm Brenna C. Gray. That's gray with an A. And if you have something longer you want to send us, I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to ask for Watership Down fan fiction. No. Unless you do have some. Uh, and then it's HK. I want to hear Watership Down stories, though. Like, oh, so yeah. If you saw the film Origin too young, stories. if yeah. you read the book, if you're North American and you're like, what is this? Yes, yes. Or if you're North American and you're like, I thought everybody knew about this text. You guys are discriminating against Americans. You know, mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. HKHSpod at gmail.com. And remember that you can use that email address as well to give us a heads up about some of the things you might like to hear in Minnesota episodes. Minnesota? Minnesota? Minnesotis? Uh, as we um, go forward. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to start collecting them. So start thinking about questions. Please. And uh, next week, in our regularly scheduled format, we will be looking at Philip Pullman's what? Why'd you gasp? No, I'm just excited for this. I feel like I've been waiting for this for a while. Okay, so we're going to be looking at Philip Pullman's The Golden Compass. And my confession off the top is that I've tried to read this book three times and have never succeeded. Which is fair. (laughs) Another confession is that doing Watership Down and then trying to do The Golden Compass back to back is one of the reasons why we were like, you know what? I think we need to switch the format (laughs) because Watership Down was a very lengthy read and then we tried to watch TV shows and then it turns out The Golden Compass has a film adaptation from 2007. Yes. And then we're also going to watch a couple of episodes of the new HBO series, which is a co-production with the UK. So there will be three episodes that we 
we can watch. I've seen two of them already, but it's called His Dark Materials, not The Golden Compass. Which is the name of the trilogy of books, yes? Yes, correct. Okay. So thanks as always for listening, folks. And uh, get your Golden Compass on because we apparently can't do enough Brit lit kid lit. And until next time, I'll see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. Happy anniversary, Brenna. Aw, Joe. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.